It is a pleasure to hang out, to close out this series of Unleash the Lion. And as we get started today, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to say on behalf of me, my bride, our team, and our future church that we are forming, thank you. Your generous gifts to Mercy Road uh, funnel money, that sounds bad, give money into Multiply Indiana, which then supports us. So by extension, you are supporting us, and we are so thankful for that. So thank you. I also want to say this church, Mercy Road Church, is a rare church, a rare church in a number of ways. Uh, A buddy of mine who's been a pastor in this area for a long time uh, has left to go to Colorado to start churches and start a network of churches out in Colorado. He's hung out here at Mercy Road, and he said, man, if I could just have one Mercy Road church out in Colorado, it would change what we are trying to do. And the vision, the mission, the people, the leader. And I want to say this, friends, you have a great pastor. You have a great pastor. I have been around my fair share of pastors, and I have not met many who are both deeply humble and so incredibly confident in the work that God has him to do. It's a confidence that doesn't come from his own pride, but a confidence that comes from the Lord. And so you as the people, uh, please, he is worthy of double honors, it says in 1 Timothy. And in Hebrews it says, listen, he looks out for you as one who must give an account. So be good people to him, okay? And from what I can see, you are being good people and following his lead. This church is also rare because only about 4% of churches in the United States multiply. So 96% of churches don't do what Mercy Road is doing. And fewer, fewer start networks of churches. Very few churches allow church planters like myself to come up here and share. And Josh to say, if you're interested, go and be a part of what they're doing. Pastors are a lot of times very close-handed with their people and resources, but a fundamental philosophical belief for Josh and Mercy Road is that God can do in someone else what he has done here and through him. Amen. Amen. So I want to honor them. I want to honor you. It's such a blessing to be here. We're closing out the series, Unleash the Lion. And this last message is about adaptive methods and contextualization. Adapted methods and contextualization. We're going to look at Acts 17. You can open to that. I'm going to give a few more thoughts and then we'll jump in uh, to the text. There's a scripture in 1 Chronicles, kind of buried in there, that I've thought about for many years. And this is what it says. The men from Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. So keep that in the back of your minds. I'll be bringing that thought, understanding the times, up in a couple of moments. Also, as we get started, I'd like to give us an analogy of a closed hand and an open hand. In our closed hand, we hold the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus. And we say, this is closed hand. We don't compromise on it. It doesn't change and we hold it here, we will, we will not adjust it. Also about the good news of Jesus, it's always breaking news. That's what gospel means, news, good news. It is always breaking news. And that is because God is eternal. And if God is eternal, if we believe he's eternal, 
then that means that he is eternally our contemporary. And whatever he has to say connects with where we are right now. So we hold the good news of Jesus in a closed hand, and yet, in an open hand, we hold the never, I mean the always changing methods of how to share the good news of Jesus. Never changing gospel, ever changing methods of sharing the good news of Jesus. We play it to our context. Ultimately, though, there are really about five questions that everyone is asking and that the gospel speaks to. And these questions are, who am I? Identity. Where did I come from? Origins. Why am I here? Purpose. How should I live? Morality. And where am I going to go when I die? Destiny. And everyone is asking these questions. Even if it's not consciously, we are asking these questions. In our time right now, if you hop on social media, you will see people asking these questions in the form of hashtag me too. It's a question of how should we live? If you listen to NPR and you're keeping up with bioethics, they're asking the question, what does it mean to be human? These questions of identity. And saying, if we can genetically modify our DNA, is that person really a human? So these are major questions, and they are, they are just about, they are just coming out right now. And these implications, or there will be far-reaching implications, but the never-changing gospel addresses all of these questions. And in fact, all the questions that I just brought up are actually implicit in Acts 17. We won't pull them out exactly, but they are all there. We must understand the times, understand the context, context that we are living in and use whatever adaptive methods we can to share the never-changing news of Jesus Christ. So if you would open with me to Acts 17, it'll also be on the screen. As we get started, I want to give you the context of what's happening here. Paul had just been in Berea sharing the gospel of Jesus, and there were these jealous Jewish leaders that were following him around. Paul was basically a fugitive. So Paul's partners, Barnabas and Silas, send Paul to Athens from Berea. So Paul is by himself in Athens, hanging out. And so he said, I'm going to make my way throughout the city. So he goes to uh, the synagogues and he reasons with the Jewish uh, leaders there and the Greek believers, the God-fearing Greeks is what it says. But he also interacts in the marketplace with anyone who wants to talk with him. And he encounters these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they say to him, man, what are you talking about? You're like a babbler. They call him a babbler. Which the, the, the word picture is he's one who's like a chicken who picks up seeds and just spouts it out of his mouth. What are you babbling on about, is what they say to him. But here's the, here's the cultural context of Athens. If you know anything about ancient philosophy, you know that it was born in Athens with Socrates, who had a student named Plato, who had a student named Aristotle, who had a student named Alexander the Great. The great thinking, and that thinking affects us today. We still use some of, especially Aristotle, we still use Aristotle's ethos, pathos, logos, right? We still use that in, in our communication and how we interact. So that was, the, that was basically the place that philosophy as we kind of know it started. And so all the Athenians, what they love to do is they love to sit around and hear all of the new ideas. Come and share all the new ideas with us. We want to hear it. 
And many of them, if they were in the upper echelon, they had servants, so they didn't really have a whole lot going on. So we'll just kind of sit around and let's hear your ideas. So they invited Paul to share his ideas, and they actually invite him to a place called the Areopagus. And I'm going to show a picture right here. The Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. We don't know for sure if Paul preached on that or right by it, but it was in this area. Now, the Areopagus was a council, and it served different functions over the many years that it was in existence. But at this time, when Paul was speaking, it was primarily a council that uh, would oversee morality and philosophy and thought. So they invite Paul up to the Areopagus and he addresses them. And so that is what we are going to look at right here in Acts 17, verses 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I've walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I have even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Well, first we see in our adaptive methods, the first thing you do when you're interacting with people in a culture is compliment them, go to them, and do not belittle them. So Paul says, I see you're religious in every way. Now, Paul would have walked through the city and seen a whole lot of obscene idols. And he doesn't go in to cry, those idols are immodest and obscene, you need to take them down. That is not what he does. He says, I see you're very religious in every way. And I see you even have an altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God. The backstory of that to the unknown God, this altar, is really fascinating. About 600 years before Paul is speaking, uh, there is a plague in Athens. And this plague wipes out a whole lot of people. And at that time, anytime there was a fever epidemic, people thought, oh my, The gods, they are displeased. And so they'd sacrifice to the gods to try to appease and rid themselves of this fever and this plague. And so a a poet named Epimenides, which we're going to, Paul's going to quote him in just a second. Epimenides comes up with this scheme and this plan on how to figure out what god they have hurt or angered. And so he releases hundreds of sheep releases them out into Athens. Hungry sheep, and they're all starting to graze. Well, he had people following the sheep, and any time one of the sheep would lie down, which was kind of strange because they were hungry, they would lie down, they would say, ah, that sheep will be consigned to the altar of the God that is nearest the sheep. So he lies down, and here's the God of whatever. I mean, there'd be so many gods. We're going to sacrifice the sheep to the God of the sun. Well, if a sheep lied down and there were no altars near it, they would set up an altar to an unknown God and sacrifice the sheep to the unknown God. So there wasn't just one uh, altar that said to the unknown God. There would have been many altars to the unknown God. So Paul says, you have this altar, you worship what you don't know, I am going to tell you about that God. This is what he says, continuing in verse 24. The God who made the world... And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God doesn't, God doesn't live, and you can imagine Paul pointing to the Pantheon, which would have been near Mars Hill. God does not live in temples built by human hands. 
God is the creator and through, through him, life and breath and everything else comes. That's what Paul is telling these people. From one man, that is Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He's saying God is sovereign over everything. God started it all and he is sovereign over everything. And why? And check this out. This is what he says. God did this. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. I love that. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey right now as you're exploring faith or you're developing your faith. But I love these words of Paul and I think it speaks right to us that he is nearer than we could ever imagine. In this very room, nearer. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, it doesn't just mean a distant heaven. It means the heavens in which the air is that we breathe right here that God is present here. He is with us. He is near us. And then Paul quotes Epimenides and he says this, for in him we live and move and have our being. Some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. They're quoting Eratos. So Paul quotes Epimenides and Eratos, these great poets. And poets for them were a little different than they are for, uh, for us now. This is not like someone coming and quoting Beyonce or something, right? This is, not, this is not JT they're quoting. They're quoting some of the greatest leaders. See, at that time, poets, poets, I mean, it's Epimenides who came up with this whole plan to stop the plague. He was a well-respected leader. It would be like us being in South Africa and quoting Nelson Mandela or being in India and quoting Mahatma Gandhi or people coming here to the States and they're quoting MLK, or Abraham Lincoln. These were great leaders. And so Paul quotes them going into their context, say, hey, I understand your context. And he quotes them. In him we live, we move, we have our being. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is made of gold or silver, or that he's like that, an image made by human design and skill. Remember, if we are his offspring and we are humans, how could he, God, be made out of silver or gold? He's basically saying, your poets said that we are God's offspring, and yet you worship these things that are lifeless. How does that work? This is Paul's reasoning. It says this, God overlooked such ignorance in the past, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is to turn your direction is going this way and you're turning your direction and following God, changing your mind, changing uh, the direction of your life. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus. So you want proof that God is real and that God is judge over the world? He raised Jesus from the dead. And at that, a bunch of them sneered at him, mocked his thoughts, but others listened. They said, actually, we'll hear you some more on this, Paul. And a few people came to faith there. 
So no, when you share the good news of Jesus, even if it's contextual, even if it meets people right where there are, there are going to be people who will sneer or mock, whether it be outside or just inside, and there are going to be people who say, man, I want to hear more about this. So just know that. So Paul is incredibly good at connecting with people where they are in their time, in their context, in culture. We see this also. So Paul comes to Athens. What does he do? He uses logic. He uses reasoning. He quotes their poets. He goes to Corinth, which is not very far away. And he says this, I didn't come to you using wise sounding words or lofty arguments. I didn't come to you the way that I did in Athens. Instead, I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. If we jump back to Acts 13, just a couple chapters before this, we see Paul is addressing the Jews. And whenever Paul talks to the Jews, he talks their language. He is a Jew, so he knows it. He talks about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He talks about the law of Moses. He talks about the Messiah. How strange would it be for Paul to go to Athens and talk about the patriarchs? That would make no sense, Right? Make no sense for him to say the Messiah. They say the Messiah of what? The prophesied one of what? But to the Jews, that makes a whole lot of sense. When Paul, one chapter later, Acts 14, he goes uh, to Lystra. Uh, him and Barnabas walk into the city. They heal this man. Right? They heal him. All of a sudden, the people of Lystra, they, shoot, we got Zeus and Hermes. They just showed up in our town. This is awesome. And they start parading them in, Paul and, and Barnabas. And they actually bring bulls, and they're about to sacrifice bulls to Zeus. Okay, The bulls were the animal of Zeus. Here's what I want to read this for you. Here's what Paul says. This is in Acts 14. He says this. They're about to sacrifice. Paul stops them. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human. We're human just like you. We are bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless idols, these worthless things, to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let the nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without a testimony. You know what the testimony is that Paul says? God says, here's the testimony that God has given you. Here's what Paul says, the testimony God has given to the people of Lystra. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in the seasons. You'd be like, okay, who cares about that? But if you dig a little bit and you say, what was Zeus the god of? Zeus was the god of thunder, lightning, and rain. So Paul says, here's the testimony. He is actually the one who brings rain. It is not your God, Zeus. When Paul goes to Athens, he uses logic. When Paul goes to Corinth, he uses power. When Paul goes to the Jewish believers, he uses the history. When Paul goes to Lystra, he uses the elements, the rain and the soil and the crops. Paul connects with people in their context where they are. And friends, that is the same thing for us. Now, most of us are not going to be as good as the Apostle Paul. He was like really good at this, right? He's incredibly good at connecting with people across uh, different cultures. That's the gift of apostleship. 
But for all of us, what are the things that, that we can learn and the places we can go to understand people's context? And here's why it's important, because context determines content. Our context determines content. That is, what, who we're saying it to, where they're from, their background, it determines what we are going to say to them. Right? Make sense? So this is why the gospel is like a many-faceted diamond. Okay? It's like a many-faceted diamond. And by the Spirit's discernment, we can, we can discern what facet to display when sharing the good news of Jesus. And here's a perfect example of how this looks in our lives, whether it be with coworkers, whether it be people in your neighborhood, in my neighborhood, Fishers, Indiana, right next to me, Indian neighbors. Right here, Jamaican neighbors. Couple doors down, we're hanging out with them tonight for the big game, Indian neighbors, Hindu background. Over the front of the neighborhood, Pakistanis. Right next to them, Lebanese. This is all in Fishers, Indiana. Now, if I go to them in the exact same way and share the good news of Jesus, this never-changing gospel, it's not going to make any sense. If I go and say, if, if, I, if I talk to my Hindu neighbors who believe there are millions of gods, the same way that I talk to an atheist neighbor or my father-in-law who's Buddhist, it's not going to make any sense. And so here's a question for you. Who are the people in your life that you need to learn their context in order that you can share the good news of Jesus with them? What do you need to learn? There, one of the most honoring things that you can do for anyone is to listen to them. It's just to listen. So listen to your neighbors and your coworkers. Understand what matters to them, where they're at. Understand the questions that they are, that they are asking. And friends, the Apostle Paul is pretty good at this, but there's one who, maybe even a little better, his name is Jesus if you believe in the Christian faith, you believe that Jesus was God and is God. But he didn't always have human form. Jesus breathed the world out, and at just the right time, Jesus adapted his method for connecting with human beings. He adapted his method, and he came into our context, literally into our time and space, physically taking on the nature of one of us, just like you and me. A human body. He was so willing to come to where we were to share the news that he is the Messiah that he took on flesh like you and me. And if we are going to understand the times, understand the context, and unleash the power of God, then we need to imitate our Savior Jesus. I don't know where you are in your journey I don't know if you are in a searching place or if you're in a place where you said, man, I'm committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. But if you are searching, I want to say this. Jesus came right to you, right into your context, became just like you so that in order that you as a human being, finite and frail, might encounter almighty God and be invited and brought into his family. That's what he's done for you. In 2002, Super Bowl, probably the best rock band of all time, U2, 
I played the halftime show. And if you remember this at all, you'll remember the chills that you probably got when you watched it. For it was about five months before the Super Bowl that September 11th happened, the terrorist attacks happened, and about 3,000 people lost their lives. And so you too had this incredible moment. They understood the times, they understood the context, they understood what we were all feeling as Americans. And they had a hundred some songs that they could have picked to close out with. And they closed with Where the Streets Have No Name. I remember as a 15 year old watching the names of all the people who were killed in the attacks. Scroll on the screen as they sing Where the Streets Have No Name. And then Bono at the end, the great Irish rocker, opens up his coat and on the inside is lined the American flag. I could have picked any song, but there was a moment and they picked the right song for the right context because they understood the times that they were in. And so, friends, just like us, Jesus is a little better than Bono, but Bono's a good example too. Know your context, understand the times so that you can share the good news of Jesus Christ with people.